0: Last week, we studied the beginning of Mark chapter 9, and we saw Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on Mount Hermon, and He was transfigured before them, and He revealed to them His glory, the glory for which He has always had, and now they got to see. He said to them that He was the Messiah. Peter declared it, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then upon the mountain, He revealed to them, He showed them the glory with which He had. And this was a powerful encounter that fixed and established, put a stake in the ground that he is who he said he was. He is who they thought he was. He was the Christ. And now they're headed down the mountain where they're going to encounter quite a scene. They're on the mountain of glory, and now they're coming into the valley of conflict. And that is the passage that we're going to be studying today. And I'll start reading in verse, amen, verse 14. Here's what the Bible says. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. And he answered them and he said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. Falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. From childhood. It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit and he said to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. I I like that part. Game over. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began to question him privately. Why could we not drive it out? It's a great question. And he said to them, this kind, everybody say this kind, we're going to look at that today. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In Psalm 127 and verse 3, the Bible says, and we are told that children are a blessing from the Lord. This is absolutely true. I can remember that um, when Bridget and I had our younger kids, if you know my story, my wife was a single teenage mom. We got married and her two boys were 9 and 11, so I had the privilege of adopting them. And that's one of the greatest privileges of my life, to raise those two boys. And her and I had two other kids, as you, as you know, Azariah and Judah. They're a part of our church. And I can remember the day that they were born. And I'm just telling you from my perspective, ladies, so just appreciate it. But when they were born, it was, it was a chaotic scene. Can we just agree? I, whatever side of this that you're on, if you're in the room when a child is born, it's just... It's chaotic, and to me, it's fascinating. Like, a woman goes through so much pain and so much difficulty, and then in one moment, when this new life emerges and a child is born, it's like all of that pain and all of that goes with that is gone all of a sudden to see this child. It's an amazing thing. It feels miraculous. Doesn't it feel miraculous? And then women, God bless you. You want to do it again. I've always thought one of the greatest miracles is that women want to do it again. And the reason that they do is because you're willing to go through all that because of this. I had the privilege, of course, when the children got through all the filtering processes and all the cleansing and pressure washing, when all that was done. Uh, it, hold on just a second. I had to say this. It's so strange. I almost passed out the first birthing scenario I was at. When Ezra was born, I literally almost passed out. I'm ashamed. I'm sorry. I know you want your pastor to be like, strong. I am, but I almost passed out. It was like Bridget, I felt like Bridget was saying to me, like, don't worry. Once I'm done with this, I'll get up and make you a sandwich. You'll be fine. It was just, she's so, my wife is so strong, you know, and I want to pretend. I mean, I I feel like I am, but it's just the weakness of man but it's like the child comes out and they just get snipped and slapped and it's like, welcome to the world. (laughs) I've always just thought that was, welcome to the life that you're gonna live. But, But when I got Azariah and I was able to hold her, I just would stare at her forever. That's what it felt like to me. And then Judah, when he was born, I would just, this little child, this child is ours. And I would just stare at them forever. It was just so strange. I was mesmerized. My emotions were overwhelmed. My words failed me. I didn't know what to say. But you know what? I felt Psalm 127 in verse three. Children are a blessing from the Lord. I felt that scripture go deep inside my heart. And I didn't articulate this to my kids. They couldn't have understood it. But this is what I meant with my heart. I meant to say to them, I will love you with all my heart for the rest of my life. I meant I will provide for you in every way and I will use all that I have uh, to give you all that I can. I meant that. And I I will disciple you by leading you to Jesus and to help you know him, love him and choose him for your own self. I I will do my best. And, And the last thought that occurred while I was there holding my children, and I still think this today, I will protect you diligently from all that would seek to harm you naturally or spiritually, I will protect you. It's just this sense of, of a father, I can say, and I know mothers have that too, Mothers, are, the mother bear instinct, but I want to protect you. I will do what I can to protect you. But I did not perceive the battle that would come for my children. I did not know on that day that there would be a battle for their soul. I, I know it now, but I didn't know it then. When I said I will protect you, I did not realize what... I was taking up in that moment because friends, our children are in a battle whether we know it or not. There's a battle in our world and there always has been, there always will be. You see it in the scripture, you see it in our culture today. And there's a posture that I wanna encourage you towards as we study this passage today. And it's this posture, whether you have children or not, we have children. And we have to take up a posture and speak to our enemy in the way we speak and the way that we live. You can't have our kids. We need to make do with the commitment of our words in the way that we live our life. And I was reading this passage and that's all that I was thinking about. I was just thinking the sentiment like you can't, devil, (laughs) you can't have our children. There are kids and we're going to raise them up in the knowledge of God. And I saw this story about a desperate father who is seeking help for his suffering son, who's been living in torment Under the enemy's power for years, perhaps 10 years, he's been living under this power. And it's a very serious, it's a very real spiritual battle. But they do the best thing that you can do, and we need to be encouraged with that. They bring the boy to Jesus. They came to Jesus, and that's what we need to do with our kids as well. And I pray that this message encourages you. I want to share with you three things out of the passage. The first, I wanna talk to you a little bit about the context of the scene that Jesus and his disciples walk into as they come down from the mountain of transfiguration. In verse 14, it says, "'When they came back to the disciples, "'they saw a large crowd around them. "'Some scribes were arguing with them. "'Immediately, the entire crowd saw him, "'and they were amazed, "'and they began running up to greet him. "'And he asked them, "'What are you discussing with them?' "'He said that to the nine disciples.'" One of the crowd answered him, "'Teacher, I brought you my son. "'He was possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. "'Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. "'He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, "'and he stiffens out.'" That means that he, he's like a corpse. He lays out like he's dead. "'I told your disciples to cast it out,' and listen to this, but they could not do it. Mark chapter 6, they cast out a lot of demons, but right here, they could not do it. The disciples, the three disciples in Jesus encounter quite a scene and there's a lot going on here. I just want to break it down into four parts. The first that we encounter is the presence of the crowd. Now, in this scenario, the crowd to me represents the watching world, people who are present but not necessarily engaged. At this point in Jesus's ministry, there's always a crowd. There's always a crowd. And I and I would say that it represents to us people that are watching, the world that is watching. The second thing that they encounter is the failure of the disciples. A father brought his tormented son to the disciples, and let's just call them the church of their day. Not long before this, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's speaking to his disciples, talking about the profession of faith that they had made as to who he is. And so they are the church of their day. And his commentary about them in verse 18 is they could not cast out the demon. I thought they could. I heard that they could. I was told that they had this power, but they couldn't do what you did the disciples had quite a bit of responsibility at this time. Jesus was up on the mountain. He leaves the nine in charge. You're called to represent me. You're called to speak in my stead. I've given you my power and my authority. You've walked in this. You know what to do. I'm going to be gone for a little while. You're in charge. And yet they could not do what Jesus did. I don't know if you can relate to this at all, if you've ever been placed in a lot of responsibility before, but That's something that as I look at their story, I feel like I relate to them. Now, it's good for you and I to relate to the disciples, and they're not these saints that are somehow distanced from us. They're people that Jesus picked that everybody else felt like he picked the wrong team. And so, hey, I feel like I can relate to them. And when I look at them, it's like, man, they were placed, they had a lot of responsibility placed on their life when Jesus went away. And so when this person came with his son, they fully expected for this power to be released and for the demon to be cast out and it didn't happen. And now there's this crowd around them and all of that. They're seeing the failure and, and I just, man, I was like, I know what it is to have a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure placed on you. It's, it's been following me my whole life. Some of you are the same. When I was 19 years old, I was a brand new Christian and I was working at a company called Washington Mutual. It's now called Chase. And uh, I was an accounts representative. Anybody know what that is? You sit there and you open accounts. Come on, buddy. And I was at the Crossroads branch in Bellevue, and they had just taught me how to open retirement accounts. And so I didn't have any clue about retirement, but I knew how to open a retirement account. And yes, this hurt my feelings. There was a guy who sat with me who was in his 60s because I'm helping people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and just appreciate this because I'm 19. And a guy in his 60s sits down with me and I'm opening a retirement account for him and he stops me and I'll never forget this man. Let's call him Dan. Let's call him Dan. (laughs) Because I don't remember his name. But he says, do you think that I'm going to open a retirement account with you when you're not even old enough to understand what a retirement account is? And I said, sir, I don't know. I'm just here to open accounts. (laughs) And that man did not open a retirement account with Ben Dixon that day. And it felt good just to share it with you, all right? (laughs) My point is, this is a lot of pressure. It's a lot, especially when somebody says it to you. I know what they were feeling. They were embarrassed. They were confused. They felt defeated. They felt like we were supposed to be able to do something, but we can't. And now there's a crowd watching and everybody can see their failure. And when people bring their problems today to the church and we can't fix it, even though we should be able to, it can feel defeating, the crowds are watching, the world is watching, but here's the reality is the boy is still suffering. That's the point. The father is still desperate. The boy is still suffering. And, and what, wouldn't you know, there's a whole group that forms around them to have an argument, the argument of the scribes. In verse 15, Jesus asked the nine disciples, what are you discussing with them? Another account of this, Matthew chapter 17, Luke chapter nine, it says they were arguing with one another. What are you discussing And it doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but it says in the middle of that, the father spoke up and said, I brought my son to the disciples and they could not cast the demon out. Scribes are experts in the law. An interchangeable term term in the gospels for scribes is lawyers. They're particular, they understand things, they're into the details. And so they're absolutely, I believe, they're judging the disciples. See, you can't do it. He's not the Messiah. I believe that they've come alongside this crowd to discredit the disciples because they wanna discredit Jesus. And we've seen that throughout the book of Mark, haven't we? And I think that's what they're trying to do. See, you're nobody, you're nothing, you can't do it. Look, the boy's still suffering. And so they're arguing all the while, there's this boy that is still suffering and being tormented under the power of a demonic spirit. I, I would tell you today that when failure is present in the church, there's always people that will come and point it out. There's a lot of God things that are happening in the world, but when failure's present, there's, there's always a, a lot of people that will point it out. You know, when there's a dead carcass, vultures always come. Now listen, some reports about the church are true and some aren't. That's why we have to have discernment. But the fourth part of this, which is where we're focusing, is the desperation of the Father. This is the saddest part in the opening scene of this passage, is there's years and years of this of this father and this son. The son is suffering under this torment and now there's literally no change. He tried. I brought my son to your disciples. I brought my son to the church. They couldn't do anything and they're still there suffering. And then the text says this, they saw Jesus and everyone was amazed. And it says they ran to him. Isn't that a great picture of people running to Jesus? When is the last time you ran to anything? Don't answer that. But there's this picture of them seeing him and it says they were amazed. Why were they amazed? The scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe Jesus still had some of that glory on him from from coming down the mountain. Maybe the Shekinah, the glory of God was still emanating from him. And they saw it and they were like amazed and they started to run towards what they believed could heal them, provide for them, deliver them, set them free. And the father and the son were in the crowd of those who were running, running to Jesus The father describes the torment to Jesus as he speaks up. And this is what he says, and pay attention to this because it's agonizing torment here. The spirit causes him to be mute, slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he stiffens out and he goes lifeless. And we're not even sure if he's alive. Can you even imagine this? Can you imagine what it's like for this to have a son, to have a child? where the demon has so much control at times it seizes your kid and tries to throw him into the water to drown him and throw him into the fire to kill him. You know what that means? This father and perhaps the mother, they're 24-hour caretakers. Constantly trying to make sure that their kid doesn't die, feeling powerless, feeling helpless, and they can't get any way out of this situation. Friends, it may not be something that we know about or relate to, but some people do. Some Some people do but I wanna talk to you a little bit about the complexity of this conflict because I think it would do us a disservice if we just talk about maybe faith or fasting and prayer because there's a lot going on in this situation and I wanna share it with you. Verse 19, he answered them and he says, "O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and he did all the things that he normally does. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, man, if you can do anything, if it's even possible for you to do something, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can't, I can't do it right, but you know. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. There's a lot of responses, a lot of things going on here. The first that I see is the unbelief of a generation. Look what Jesus first says. His reflection is not just to the disciples and their powerlessness. Friends, listen to this. His first comment is, oh, unbelieving generation. That's everybody that's present. There's a whole crowd there. There's the disciples, there's the scribes, there's the crowds that wanna see something. Perhaps they want something from Jesus. Oh, unbelieving generation, he's talking to everybody under the sound of his voice. He lumps all of them into this, everyone that I'm talking to. Matthew and Luke add another word to it. He says, unbelieving and perverse. The word perverse means corrupt. Unbelieving and corrupt generation. The word corrupt would be used for heathens, non believers, those that do not follow, acting opposite from that which Jesus would do and say. In my mind, Jesus is staring at the Father and the Son when he says this. This is just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I believe he's staring at the Son when he says this. Here's the boy suffering. Unbelieving generation. Here's the suffering how long shall I remain with you? How long shall I put up with this? I've come to change this. I have come to see this change, this suffering, this torment. This is not something that needs to exist. It needs to remain. We know that his frustration is clear, but the why of his frustration is what's most important. Why is he frustrated? Because the suffering still exists. How do I know that? First John chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this about Jesus. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everybody say amen. amen. Jesus appeared. He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. The word destroy means to untie that which is bound. It's like a generation is bound in unbelief. Addiction, sin, and every other thing that is opposite of who God is and what God is like and what He created us for. And we are bound by the enemy and the sin and the temptation and His solicitation to get us into a place where we are everything but what God has created us for. And it says, for this Purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy that which binds what God has created for us to do as we glorify Him. He came to destroy. We can't do it, but Jesus came to do it. So he was frustrated because he gave his disciples power and authority, but for some reason they weren't able to exercise it. So he says, "Unbelieving generation. That's everyone. That's the Father as well. That's the scribes, that's the crowd, that's everyone. Unbelief is the air that they breathe. My question is, what would Jesus say about our generation? Would Jesus say about our generation, oh, unbelieving generation, pause. Don't push it off of yourself, right? It's easy to do that, but us, would he say that unbelieving generation? Are you waiting for me to just come and do it for you or or have, have I not given you what you need to move into the world and see this bondage broken? Kids' lives transformed, the next generation raised up. Have you not been given what you need to do what I said? Would Jesus say that about our generation? Would he say that we were corrupt? The contrast here is this. The disciples were called to be a bright light, to carry the torch into a dark time, and they weren't able to do it. In the crowd, they were just the same. They were there powerless, confused, wondering why this was still there. And Jesus comes and he, he speaks to the unbelief. And it would seem that today the church in a general sense is being discipled more by the culture than by the word of God, than by the the Lord himself, the character of Christ, the words of Jesus, the ways of the Lord. Maybe it is that he would say over us, if we could hear it, unbelieving generation, not to punish us, not to put us down, not to ridicule us, but to call us to something greater. If we could hear that, we could change. Maybe he would call us to that as well because we see it in the church today. There is a narrative about the church that they're not necessarily always like what the one they're following is like. Sometimes we get fearful about the world's influence today. We're afraid and so we want to build walls around our children. We have all of our our children are suffering with all that's going on in the world today and so all we got to do is preserve. We've got to build walls around them and that'll solve the problem. No, friends, it's not what we build around our kids. It's what we build in our kids. I would tell you, we should be afraid if we're not building something in our children that is stronger than what the world is giving. That's where we should be afraid. Sometimes we're trying to keep our kids from ever touching the world. We're supposed to be in the world and not of it. We don't want our kids to drink what they're drinking and to do what they're doing and to say what they're saying. But we've got to build something into our children if we want to see them change. We can't neglect our kids. We can't neglect the kids that we have. And I don't just mean your children. I mean our children. We've got to give them better than what we had. Amen. Amen. A vision for every parent in this room should be that my children are better than I was. I want them to go farther. I want them to reach higher. I want them to know Jesus better. I want them to love him more. I want my kids to be more than me. Something that my parents told me when I was young that stuck with me ever since. And I was not a perfect Christian kid. In fact, I was far from it. But something that they told me when I was young that stayed with me, my dad would say to me, I don't care what you do in life in terms of your vocation, your job, all I care about is that you love Jesus passionately. I want to tell you something. It doesn't matter what we do in this life, the status, the accolades, and all those things. At the end of the day, do we serve Jesus passionately? Do we love him more than anything? Friends, that's what matters. I spend a lot of time with people in the last chapter of their life, and I'll tell you what they regret they regret not giving their kids their best as it pertains to Jesus. Some of their kids are kids. They can have all of it. They got the accolades. They got the college education. They got the nice house. They got the cute family. They got the dog, the picket fence. They got the whole thing. And they got a little bit of morals. They're good, but they don't love Jesus. And at the end of our life, that's what we're thinking about. Did I give them everything I had? Friends, we can't just say it like, devil, you can't have our kids. We've got to mean it with our life. We've got to give them our best. We've got to give them the word of God. We've got to live it ourselves. If we don't live it, what chance do they have? If church is optional, if the Bible is occasional, if prayer is unusual, then defeating the enemy is impossible. It's impossible. We can't have a little and expect them to overcome more. It's not possible. So when we say this, we've got to follow it up. I was reading statistics and Barna talks about from 2016 to 2019, our young adults are leaving the church in 5% increments. In five years, five more percent, five more percent, they're leaving the church. They're not leaving the church, they're leaving their faith. Perhaps they never had faith. And this is the reality that we're living in. And so what are we gonna do about this? Sometimes people will blame the church I brought my kids to church. And sometimes the church will blame the parents. Well, you didn't do discipleship in the home. You know what I believe? It takes all of us. It takes the homes and it takes the church. And both of them have to be on fire for God if we're really gonna see our kids be better than us. We need both. We need the church and we need the family, the two institutions that raise up kids in the knowledge of God to go farther than we've gone before. We need both to be in alignment, moving together in the day's ahead. Jesus says, unbelieving generation. The second part is the level of demonic activity. He says to them, bring the boy to me. And the demon seized him and threw him into a convulsion, tries to kill him. This is serious level of demonic activity. You agree with that? This is pretty high level. But I would tell you that regardless of whatever level that we face in terms of the enemy's activity in our lives and against our kids or the kids of our generation, The enemy's trying to destroy them no matter what it looks like. He'll use whatever it works. Demonic power doesn't care if it's a possession to throw them into the water or the fire or humanism or secularism or whatever it is. He'll use whatever works to get them away from being like and following Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. And so while we look at this scenario and we go, my kids are doing pretty good. They've never faced anything like that. But the question is, do they love Jesus with all their heart because The assault is very real. The battle rages on. We have to acknowledge that the enemy doesn't care. He'll use atheism. He'll use humanism, moralism. Yeah, I have good kids. Are they godly kids? Are they Christ-focused kids? Do they love the Bible? Do they love Jesus? No, friends, that's what we're after. Whatever the activity of the enemy against our children is, we've got to take it seriously. And number three is the length of time dealing with the conflict. Jesus sees the demonic manifestation and he asks what looks like a compassionate question. I don't even really know why he asked the question, but he stops when he sees the kid convulsing and he says, how long has this been happening to him? How long? And the father says, since his childhood. You know what this means? When you look at the word childhood, it means more like close to his infancy, maybe a toddler. That's what the word means. So it suggests that he's a youth and that it's been going on for 10 years, perhaps. Something like this. Jesus asked this question. We don't know why. I think he asked this question as a point of discernment. I think he asked this question as a point of discernment for our knowledge, for our instruction, for the disciples to understand something. Why do we think that? Later on, the last verse, the disciples say, why couldn't we cast this one out? And he says this, this kind, everybody say this kind. This kind kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. And maybe what Jesus was talking about is you guys aren't living a kind of life that's God-dependent, but more self-reliant. You're not going to see this come out. You're not going to see this dealt with. You're not going to see this change without a type of God-dependence that looks a whole lot different than whatever it is that you're walking with. And we're talking about the disciples. Well, what kind of demon? I mean, I'm just throwing an idea out there. I've thought about this a lot. I'm Perhaps a generational spirit. I don't have time to get into that. There's some bad teaching on this stuff, but a generational spirit, something that has stayed with a family, a familial, not just familiar, but a familial spirit. There were days when I didn't believe in that kind of stuff until I actually had it manifest in our own family. And I saw that it crept in, the sins of the fathers. We know that it's broken through the blood of Jesus and us giving our lives to him. But when people are not surrendered and they have secrets, these things flow through generational lines. I don't have time to go through that, but perhaps this is the kind of spirit that has access to a child. You explain that to me. He says, since he was young, explain, I don't, I don't know, this kind, a kind that can affect and influence a generation of children. This is the kind that, he, that I think he's talking about. Friends, this is the kind that we're up against. It's the kind that we're fighting today. Principalities and powers and demonic spirits. The stuff that we're up against today is not just people, politicians. We get mad about all this other stuff, but there is a principality and a power at work in the world. Friends, do not forget this. Animating, motivating, influencing. Influencing wanting to go covert, doesn't want people to see, but there's something lurking in the shadows, influencing and inspiring. And that is what we are wrestling with. Paul said it in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. The question is, are we wrestling? Are we wrestling? Are we fighting? Are we standing? Are we going after? And not in the way of the world, but in the way that Jesus calls us to. You say, well, how is that? I'm about to tell you, you just hold on, keep your seatbelt on keep your seatbelt locked in. We look here at the reality of, of the doubt within the Father. The Father says, if you can do anything, please help us. Where did this comment come from? <laughs> He's talking to Jesus. Maybe there's a little glory shining off of him, a little Shekinah, you know, little, there's a little glory shining off Gee, Lord, if you can do anything, why would he talk like this? If you can do anything, if I can? Lord, if it's possible, if you feel like it, if you got a little bit of leftover from the mountain, I know you're tired and you just got down. Maybe if you've got a little something left for my son, could you do something? But I doubt it. I doubt that you even can. That's what he's doing. How long has he been dealing with this? 10 years? I mean, chronic trauma he's dealing with in his son. He's wore out. He just brought his son to the disciples and the failure happened there. The disappointment is very real. So when he comes to Jesus, he's fresh off a disappointment. Nothing happened there. Maybe nothing's going to happen here. And so he confesses his unbelief. Jesus reorients his statement. Listen to this. Jesus reorients his statement. If you can do anything, Jesus says, if I can do anything, is, is your is your faith maybe misplaced? Because he's confessing his doubt about whether or not something can happen for his son because of all that he has gone through. But if he's standing in front of and he's talking to the the living Christ, he is the one that can do something about it. And Jesus reorients his language and says, if I can do anything, all things are possible to them who believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus can do what you can't. Friends, this is what we're talking. It's not faith in faith. I know there's the word of faith movement out there that's all about having faith, faith in faith. They don't even, the object of the faith doesn't even get brought up all that much. It's about having faith in Jesus. And faith isn't just something you say. It's something that you pray. It's something that you live. It's something you can see in your life. That's why James would say, faith without works is dead. You can't just say it. You've got to pray it. You have to live it. It has to be something alive in you. Jesus said, all things are possible to them who believe. Believe what? Believe in the object of their faith. Who is Jesus, the son of God, is the only one that can do something about these terrible things that we're facing. And the father says that he confesses his doubt. I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to believe. I wanna say this to you today, very important. An honest confession almost always always precedes a faith profession. Friends, here's what I wanna tell you today. You cannot start with Jesus where you want to be. You cannot start where you think you are. You have to start where you are. Today, if we're living in doubt as it pertains to what's in front of us, what's in us, what we're going through, what we're hiding, what we're walking out, what we're fighting against, what is going on in our family, friends, if we're living in doubt, we're living in prayerlessness, we've got to start there. Jesus wants us to be honest with him. I have doubt, Lord, but I don't want to stay there. Will you help me? Everybody say, help me. Come on, that'll work in a jam. (laughs) Some of us, like, I don't know how to pray. Can you say, help me? (laughs) I mean, it's good. Help me. Why is it so hard to say, help me? Isn't it proof that we're self reliant? Come on, mess with you today. I told you I was coming. (laughs) Isn't it proof that we can be self reliant because we can't even say it? Help me. And maybe you have a problem with that with people, but do you have a problem with that with God? Help me. That's why prayer is so hard. We make a lot of excuses. Well, I don't know how to pray. I'm not that eloquent. I don't know if I have the time, all this kind of stuff. Can you say, help me? Because when we get in a jam, come on, we got to call on. All right, that's going to root that into this church. It's going to happen. Get in a jam, call on the land. We got to learn how to do that outside of a jam. He wants us to be honest about the doubt that's really there. Why? Because He wants to move us on. You cannot move on if it's rooted in your life. I've got doubt. I don't believe that he's gonna change my child. I don't believe that he's gonna change anything in our world. I don't believe that he's gonna use me. I don't believe that. Start where you are. That is not some false confession that overrides the faith that he wants to impart into your heart. Don't believe that. He wants us to be honest. Just like fathers and mothers in this room want our children to be honest. Is there anything more you want from your kids than for them to be honest? If they're struggling, do you want them to hide it? You walk up to your kid and you say, how are you doing? And like, bless God, I'm fine. And you're looking at them and they're all messed up. They're everything but fine. You want them to be honest. You want them to be vulnerable. You want them to be open. Why? Because you know the day that they're open to you is the day that you can rush in and help. Because when somebody's vulnerable and they're honest, that's where they get help. But no friends, what is it? We're too strong, right? We're too strong. It's it's to be self-reliant. He wants to break the power of that. And the father does something beautiful. He confesses. And you know what happens? He swoops right in and he delivers this son of the demon. The minute he says, I doubt, but help my unbelief. The minute he does that, God changes everything. That's when Jesus moves in power. The problem is not the demon. Can we see that today? The problem is not the demon. The problem is not even the size of the demon, the power of the demon. The problem is that when we're standing in front of Jesus and we're not praying, instead we're talking about the problem and we're not asking him to change it because we've lost something in ourselves. That is the problem. And that's what Jesus is telling the father. It's not the power or the size or the scope or the amount of the demons that is in the way. It is the reality of our faith? Do we believe that God can do it even though it hasn't happened yet? Do we believe he can change it? Can he change our family? Can he change our kids? Can he change our hearts? Can he do it? Jesus reorients his language and now he's like, help me. I have unbelief, but I want to believe. And being honest with our doubt is not defeat, it's victory in the making if we bring it to Jesus. Come on. Being honest is victory in the making. Well, how do we commit to conquer the conflict? I'm so glad that you asked. Verse 24, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and don't enter again. In my mind, if I just sort of hear in my heart, this shall not pass. (laughs) If you know, you know. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. The boy began, became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. And he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? See, they expected to be able to do it. Why could we not do this? And he said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Everybody say prayer. prayer. I'm harping on this issue of prayer. This is why. This is a real story. Our kids may not be demon-possessed, but they're certainly demon-attacked. And when, as parents, when we say, I'm going to protect you diligently of all threats, both foreign and domestic, <laughs> foreign being spiritually as well, I'm going to protect you. Spiritually speaking, is that the case? This is not just a physical war we're fighting, friends. That's what we have to realize. So what do we do? What do we do right now? Well, first thing I think we do, if we're just looking at the text, is we need to have a sincere and serious request for enduring faith. The father asked Jesus to help him, and he responded powerfully. That's simple. That's crazy simple. He cast the demon out of the boy, and and it looks like the boy died, doesn't it? It looks like he died. He might have even died. I mean, this thing was so intricately woven into the kid's life that maybe perhaps when the demon was separated from the kid physically, he just, that was He was depleted. And then it says, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. I I believe healing and deliverance go together. That's very often the case. When a person gets delivered of something, they still need help on the other side. 20% of deliverance is that freedom and that power encounter with Jesus, but 80% is discipleship. That's why some people get delivered and healed, and then they just go right back to the same thing is because they don't put anything in place when their deliverance has occurred. That's a really important principle. Jesus raises him up. This honest confession brought about a response, and I believe it's something that we also need to press into to admit that there's a struggle with our faith, whether that's internal or practical, is the first step towards repentance, And we're saying to the enemy, you can't have our kids, but does he have our surrender? Does the Lord have our surrender? Because if we wanna say this and we wanna protect our children, our kids, kids in our church, kids in our society, Jesus has to have our surrender. He has to have it. You can't be half surrendered. And this is what we have to have, a sincere and serious request. We have to come before God and say, I need enduring faith. I'm not living the way I should or could. I need more from you. And he'll give it to us. And the second is a renewed posture of prayer and fasting that brings supernatural breakthrough. Prayer and fasting. Matthew doesn't just say prayer. Matthew says fasting. After everything was done, the disciples come to Jesus and they want to know, and they should want to know, why did we fail? Why did we not have the power? Why could we not cast out the demon? And Jesus says this kind, this kind. I believe that we are still facing these kinds of spirits, but I think they get smarter. I think they know how to be covert. I think the spiritual battle is very real and we are up against it. Have you ever felt that you're up against a wall that you can't see? There's something that is pressing against you and your family and our society and the church. Have you felt that thing? And so in the natural, we're trying to do this and we're trying to do that and we get angry, but do we go to our knees and do we pray? Do we seek God? in a way that shows the Lord. We believe that you can do something. Wednesday, I was um, outside in my car. I was parked in the parking lot and a couple of you drove by me. I don't know who it was. But you probably thought, that's pretty weird. Pastor Ben's just sitting in his car with the windows open. So, hey, thanks for waving at me. Amen. I was praying. I was praying in my car before prayer. We have prayer at seven on Wednesdays and I was praying before prayer. Imagine that. And I was praying for you. I was praying for us. I was praying for our kids. I was praying for my kids. I was asking God to move powerfully. That's what I was doing out there. I wasn't just hanging out in my car in the parking lot, which is odd. And as I was praying, I had a, I had a number of things happen I can't go into. The, the only thing I wanted to share with you was, first, when you set yourself to pray, something starts to happen, friends. I want to tell you that. Something starts to happen. I've set myself to pray, and something has started to happen. And as I was praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And that's what I heard him say, just to my heart. It was an internal voice of the Holy Spirit. He said, you need to pray like it matters or it won't. I want to say that too. You need to pray like it matters or it won't. This isn't a pressure to you. I'm telling Hear that in your heart from the Holy Spirit. You need to pray like it matters or it won't. Unless we can come to a place where we realize we are far too self-reliant and not God-dependent. Friends, it won't change. We will not change this in our own strength. I don't care how strong we are. I don't care how we look or what we have, what our bank account has. All of that stuff does not fight the spiritual battle. It won't win. You can build up your portfolio. You can have all that stuff, but you will lose the spiritual battle. You will lose it because that's not how we win. And Jesus tells them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I bet you they did a whole lot of hoopla. I bet you they were all Pentecostal. They probably laid hands and pushed them over and they probably, I bet they did it all, you know. And they come to Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And he said, oh guys, listen, you remember when He came to you yesterday and you were unsuccessful. Yeah. You remember you had a whole night in prayer and you knew I was coming back. Yeah. What did you do? We slept. They're good at sleeping. We're good at sleeping. Isn't that right? There's a proverb that talks about don't love your bed. I mean, isn't that so (laughs) practical? It's like, oh, I love my bed. There's a proverb that actually says that. It talks about laziness, like the sluggard who loves their bed. Jesus is probably reflecting on the fact that they had a whole night to feel the suffering of what was going on in their world and press into God and begin to pray and seek the Lord and do something about it. Don't think that's nothing, that was something. And Jesus actually tells them, this kind, you, you can't win. You've, you've gotta be a person of prayer. I, t- I, wanna, I wanna tell you today, it, it, it is, this is not a time to sit back. The days in which we're living, it's not a time to sit. This is a time to fast and pray. This is a time to dust off our Bibles and to memorize the promises of God. This is a time to step up. This is a time to take a knee. This is a time to start praying like we've never prayed before. This is a time to pray. This is a time to seek God. You say, well, Ben, we don't wanna pray only. I've had that people have said that and I think that's really nice. Usually that's a confession of a prayerless life. I'm just being honest with you. Let's just admit it. Let's just call it what it is. When somebody says that to me, when they say, oh, Ben, you can't can't just pray. That person does not know what prayer means when they say that to me. If you're in this room and you've seen God do a miracle because you began to pray and you began to fast, go ahead, raise your hand. Let me see something. I want you to look around this room. Go ahead, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. I want you to look around this room. Do you believe? Look at what we're saying today. And we forget that, don't we? We'll say, you say, Ben, I haven't seen it. I I haven't seen God do it. I haven't seen God move in power. I want to ask a question. Maybe nobody thought about the father in the situation, but he was the one that Jesus dealt with concerning his unbelief. We don't want to talk about the Father, especially in today's culture. It's almost like you can't even ask people, have you prayed? Do you read the Bible? Are you seeking God? It's like you can't even do that. You just have to get into the trauma of a situation. And I get that. I want to cover people. I want to care for people. I care about mental health and all that. But if we got into a place where we literally can't ask people if they even have a spiritual life, Have we gotten to a place where we literally can't bring up repentance? Like maybe you are responsible. Maybe you haven't done anything. Maybe you don't have a life of prayer. Are we there? Are we literally there? Where because I don't want to offend you and pastors or people or church, I don't want to offend you. So I can't even bring up the fact that maybe you've lived a prayerless life your entire Christian existence. But friends, don't say that. Don't say that because it'll offend people and they'll leave. And I, I just want this kind to leave our generation. That's what we want. I don't want my kids just to be moral, nice, have all of their degrees, look really cool. I want my kids to be godly. I want our kids to do more than we've done. I want our kids to prophesy, to pray. I want our kids to share the gospel. I want our kids to be unashamed. I want our kids to have conviction, not just what we tell them to do, but they're reminding us, come on, wouldn't it be wonderful if your kids walked up and said, hey, mom, dad, we don't do that. We're Dixons. <laughs> Come on, Scott, we're, Dix- we're Dixons. That means something. We follow Jesus. If church is optional, if the Bible is occasional, if prayer is unusual, defeating the enemy is impossible. Let that stick in our minds today. Let that stick in our minds today but that's the way of the culture, isn't it? Perhaps the culture is discipling us more than our savior. Perhaps the culture is entertaining us more than Jesus is instilling something in us. Maybe the culture is telling us who we are, who God is, what we can do and what we can't do. Maybe it's the culture. Maybe it's the voices out there that are influencing what's in here. Friends, it can't be us. One time I had this vision and I... uh, I have these pictures and the Lord gives them to me and I don't even know if they make sense, so just humor me for a second, all right? Prakash, amen, you got me? All right, he got me. All right, one of you, I got one. I saw this picture of an extension cord that was plugged in the sanctuary and it was going all the way outside and I saw it and I thought perhaps the power was in the building that was empowering what was going on out there. Like God was doing something in here and it was moving powerfully out there. And I was like, oh, wow, I saw this extension cord and it's plugged into the power source and we're moving out. And then I realized that it was plugged into a generator out there. And the other end of it was coming in here to empower what was going on in here. And I thought, oh, that's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be the power source that's going out there. The power source isn't supposed to be having an influence in here. And I thought, this is upside down. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted to show me. That's exactly what needs to change. But I'll tell you, we start praying. We start renewing that posture of prayer. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah, it's strange. Like, how do we pray? What do we pray? We figure it out. But I I would I would encourage us first to clean our secret places and cleanse all that stuff out of our closets. If our secret place is full of everything else but prayer, friends, it's time for us to clean the closet. Let's kick everything out of there that doesn't belong. You want our you want if we want our kids to be raised up, we've got to live a kind of life where what we live compels them about the Jesus that we serve. They got to see it. As I was praying and meditating on how to close this message, I don't always do that, by the way. suggest that I polish it all out. I, you could tell I don't, but amen. Verse 19 stuck out to me. Look at, look at what it says. Jesus, in the midst of this, Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. Scott, will you grab that real quick? This is just uh, Pastor Scott bringing a box. You don't have to stare at him. He's just going to bring a box, okay? I always lose you guys. Don't, don't, don't let me lose you. They're all eyes here. I got two minutes left. Just a guy bringing a box. That's always happening. Jesus says, bring him to me. Everybody say, bring him to me. Bring him to me. me. This is our benevolence box, and I'm going to use it for something else today. We used it last night, and I just had this thought. It was a couple weeks ago I asked uh, our church to commit to fasting and prayer for prodigals our kids that have walked away from the Lord, whether they're youth or young adults, there was over 70. I, I don't know. I lost count. I, I know there was seven. It could have been 120. There's a lot of us that said, we're going to cry out to God. And it's not enough that they say they believe. They've got to live it too. That, that, was, that to me is a prodigal. A prodigal is, not someone that's a, a prodigal is not someone that just is away from God and clearly doesn't believe. But even if they don't live it, that's a prodigal too. And so I called our church and we had a lot of people show up on Wednesday night and we were we were crying out to God. I saw people that probably haven't had tears in their eyes for their kids crying out to God like that for years. And they were crying. And those dry eyes were gone and we were crying out to God. And we've seen movement already. Last night, two people told me they've seen movement with their kids already, their adult kids. There's movement, friends. We're praying there's movement. God's moving. As we pray them in, God will hem them in. Come on, it's going to happen. And so what today, what I would like to do is I want you to take, if you have a prodigal, if you have a son or a daughter, if you have a loved one that's close like a son or a daughter, I want you to take a Connect card that's in the back of the chair. I want you to do that right now. I want you to just, just grab it. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I, I've said to you before that Bridget and I have four kids, but one of them we're contending over to walk in the Lord. He doesn't watch the live stream, so I'm not embarrassed. But he knows I'm unashamed. We're going after all of our kids to walk in the Lord Fearlessly. So I got a card in there, amen, I'm with you. And uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna fill out that card, fill out your name, your email address, and on the back, write their name. We're gonna put this in this box and we're gonna pray until all of them come back to Christ. We're gonna pray as a church family. Nobody's gonna see this. I'm not gonna bring the names out. We're not, that's not public thing. I see this, I'm gonna put it on a list and we're gonna start praying. We've gotta pray like it matters or it won't. Friends, we started something, we're gonna finish it. Do you wanna finish this with me? I'm asking you to finish this with me. I'm asking that God would bring back every son and daughter that we have to walk with him in power, effectively, passionately. And we're gonna pray until it happens. Write their name on that card. And after we close, I want you to bring it up and I want you to put it in this box. It's a prophetic act as we stand together as a church. We're not just individuals, we are a family and we're gonna put that card in there and we're gonna contend. And the second thing I'm gonna ask you to do, is that if you can come, if you can come, Netflix will stay there, all right? (laughs) Hulu, Prime Media, it'll it'll, it'll all be there when you come home. But if you can come to prayer this Wednesday at 7 p.m., once a month, we're going to fast and pray. It's called prodigal prayer. You don't have to have a prodigal to join us, so you can just come, but we're going to have prodigal prayer once a month. And we're going to gather in the chapel this Wednesday at 7 p.m. I'm asking you to come if you, if you can. Obviously, some of us work, some of us can't come, but if you can come, I'm asking you to come and cry out to God. Let tears come out of your eyes again. Let passion for them come out of you again. Let's ask God to renew our hearts for them again, and I, I believe that He will do it. Amen. Do you believe that with me today? Thank you, Lord. Would you stand as I close? Lord, we thank you today for your grace thank you for what you're doing. We pray all of them. Come on, just pray. We pray for all of them in the name of Jesus. We ask for every son, every daughter, every kid, every child, every youth, every adult that has walked away or maybe never bowed their knee. We pray they would come to know Jesus. We pray them into the kingdom. We ask, Lord, Father, that you would move in powerful ways in our, the lives of our kids. But Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts first. We surrender to you If there's changes we need to make, if there's things that we need to do, if there's places that we need to go, if there's something that you want to change in us, Lord, let it happen. Start with us, Lord. Change us, we pray. Move in power, we ask. Father, raise us up as we pray that you would raise up our kids. As we were in the prayer room earlier, I had this vision and it's kind of strange, but it could apply to some people. Have you ever been to the fair and you go up to those games and you, you pay money to toss the rings into the top of the bottle, you know you can't win. Everybody with me on, you know, you can't win. That's how they make the money. But sometimes you get that gusto and you're like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna win the big bear from my kid or something. And, and then you keep throwing those things out. You keep paying out the money and they, you don't win. Don't, I know one of you is gonna ruin it for me and say you won, don't, just don't. All right. There's a couple of you in here. I get it. Okay. You're an anomaly, but you understand what I'm saying? You throw the ring out and then it only takes one time for you to realize that you're not going to win. And the next time you go to the fair, you know what we do? We just walk by the game. (laughs) And then we tell everybody who's with us, you can't, you can't win on that. You can't win. (laughs) See, now we're an advertisement for what you can't do. Right. And there was this picture. It's because I'm that person, I tell everybody, you can't win, don't play the game, don't play the game, don't waste your money. But it's a strange picture to say this, that just like that game in a different way, it's like spiritually, sometimes we've, we've done something in the Lord that we felt called to do and we didn't win. And so now what we do is we just walk by it and we say, you can't win, so why play? I think that's what prayer's been a lot like in our lives. Maybe you've lost something, Maybe you've prayed and you haven't seen it happen. Listen, I get it. I know what it's like to feel your kids walk away. I know what it's like to feel something inside of yourself and you want it to come alive. I know what it feels like to walk by that thing, look at it, know you need to stop and not stop. I know what that feels like. I do. And I'm just saying that God wants to revive that in us today. Amen. He wants to revive that in us today. Would you receive that from him today? He wants wants us to stop by the place of prayer and fasting and say, I'm going to play this game. I'm going to do this now. And I'm going to see God do something because he's going to respond by the simple faith of just stopping. God will do it. Feel like you've been punched in the gut, but you need to get back up. He can get you up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every person in this room It's a silly vision that you gave me, Lord, but if there's something true about it where we are walking by the things that you once called us to and we didn't see it happen and the wind's been knocked out of us, I pray today by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would breathe life upon us and on that area right now. I pray, Father, for each one of us that's in that place and for those online that are watching, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, that we would come alive to who you are and what you're doing. And we confess, I believe, but help my unbelief. Today, I believe, but help me in that place. And you say to us, I will. I pray that we would hear that, I will. And so we're gonna come. We're gonna bring our kids to you. Bring them to me, the Lord says. Bring them to me, we will. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.